This is part two of the Sisters on the Front Lines podcast with Brian Willoughby. What does pornography use look like in a dating relationship and in a marriage relationship? Should spouses be each other's accountability partners? I'm guessing the answer is no, but I want you to elaborate. And just kind of outline what that looks like in the healthiest way. Right. Well, let me let me separate those two because I think dating and marriage are probably two very different types sure. of things. I think, yeah. I think in dating... Uh, there's two pieces to that, right? One is this disclosure question. Like when, when do you talk about this? Mm -hmm. When, like, do you talk about it? Do you disclose? How do you disclose? Like there's kind of all these questions and and kind of like what I said about talking to kids. Like when I get that question, I always immediately say like, okay, like first off, yes, like there should be disclosure at some point in the dating process, because one of the things you want to avoid about any topic is we dated, we got married, and I withheld this big thing in my life. And now, you know, two years and three years, five years into my marriage, now I'm telling you this thing that's been this like, critical part of, of my mental health and something that I've been dealing with. And I kind of throw it at you, you know, five years into a marriage, or more likely, you found out something and I'd never disclosed. And now we're having this kind of whole discussion about betrayal and lying and honesty. So, Yes, it's part of disclosure, but it's not a, again, it's not a specific necessarily porn disclosure. It's the idea that when you're dating someone over time, you develop more intimacy, more closeness. And over time you start to disclose more because you're connecting with that person and you want them to understand not just all the good things like you're doing when you're first starting to date, but you want them to understand maybe some of your weaknesses too, because they become part of your emotional support system as you date. And so just like I might tell someone I've been dating for three months about my parents' divorce when I was young and how it was hard for me, or maybe I tell them about a mental health diagnosis and anxiety disorder that I've been dealing with, you know, for the last four years. And and again, I'm not going to do that in the first month or two of dating, but maybe when we've been dating for three, four, five months, I find an opportunity to tell you about this hard thing or this thing that I'm struggling with. Pornography is just another one of those things. And I think that's the mental barrier to get past. Mm -hmm is in, in particularly in the religious communities like ours, porn feels like, and it's so interesting to me to say, I have no problem disclosing my depression, anxiety disorder, but the fact that I looked at porn for a little bit in high school, nah, I'm not going to tell you about that. Mm-hmm. We have to, to bring them to even playing fields a little bit and, and get over the mental hurdle that somehow pornography puts this scarlet letter on me. And, and, and I know I talk to, to a lot of young adults sometimes like, but it does, it does put a scarlet letter on me. And, and, and although it's hard, what I tell them sometimes is say, yeah, but if you're to tell someone you're in a committed relationship with about your pornography history and they completely reject you because of that, is that really the person you want to marry? Okay. Right. Is, is, is that's about forming a good foundation for a healthy relationship is you need to be able to talk to the people that we love about those things. And so I, I think a lot of the dating piece is just healthy disclosure at a, a time that's appropriate for the relationship, just like you would with these other things. And then it's just about being honest and being vulnerable like you would with these other factors and, and not doing what I like to call toe dipping disclosure, which is, okay, I, maybe I've been, you know, kind of struggling with porn on, on and off again for, for, you know, since I was 12 up until today. But what I'll do is I'm going to tell you about a time I looked at porn when I was 13 and I'm not going to tell you anything else. And I'm going to see how you react to that. And if mm-hmm. you react poorly, that I'm certainly not going to tell you about what happened last week. And I'm probably never going to talk about it again. 
you want to avoid that. Like, like when you have the discussion, like, like be open about it and, and talk. And, and like I said, not in a, a confessional way, but more in a, we're in a, a deep committed relationship. And I want to share everything about my life with you, including my weaknesses and my warts. And, and I hope you want to do the same thing because now what we're trying to build towards is a relationship where we work together. And, and part of that is we have to be vulnerable with each other. Now that leads to the second part on marriage. And I am going to disagree with you a little bit because okay. I think ideally your spouse would be your accountability partner. Hmm. And the reason for that is that again, and, and I'll speak in an ideal setting, right? Is in an ideal setting, my spouse is my primary support system in my life. It's the person that I should be able to tell anything to and should always have my back. And, and that should go both ways. And so if I'm trying to, to drop a pornography habit, whether it's a bad habit or a compulsive addictive pattern, that should be my go-to person. That should be the person that, that has my back and is trying to work with me as a team. And that's a key thing with pornography. It's not my problem. And you're the one helping me with my problem. We're married. We're connected. It's our issue. It might be my behavior, but it's our issue. And so if we can get an understanding that, that we're working together and so, and so here's kind of the mental flip I think needs to happen with some people. Yes. You, in that setting, then you should absolutely be my accountability partner, meaning, and, and let's maybe just make sure people understand what that means, right? Is you're the person I check in with about if I've had to slip up, if I've looked at porn, you're the one asking me and checking in on, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. You should be that person because honestly, in a good, healthy relationship, I should be coming to you anyway with these things and I shouldn't be scared to come to you, but it's not a relationship that just goes that way. I, in some ways, should be your accountability partner because I understand my porn use affects you emotionally hmm. and is hard for you. And so just like you're checking in with me about, hey, have you had a slip up or not? I'm checking in with you about, hey, how are you feeling about this? Like, are you doing okay? Are you, are you stressed? Are, you, are there things I can be doing on my end to help build this relationship up? And so we create a relationship where we're supportive of each other through this process. And so in an ideal world, yeah, I think that's it. And I, I understand there's situations where there's been a lot of betrayal, a lot of lying, a lot of strong emotions, where maybe early on in particular, maybe there's there's not the sense that we can navigate this completely together. And if you're my accessibility partner, I'm just going to hide and lie and, and I don't want that. And so there, there certainly are situations where maybe we work towards that. And there's other people in my life that I'm also checking in with. But I do think in an ideal world, that's what we're building towards is that this is something that we work on together. I love it. And I'm, I'm very glad that you disagreed with me on that because that's something that I've kind of had a hard time just mentally reconciling because I had heard a lot like, oh, your spouse absolutely should not be your accountability partner. You have to have someone outside. And I guess I'm still like haven't fully formed an opinion on that. But I don't know. It's like that's interesting because. I know that I personally, when I do get married, that's something that I do want to be involved in and not in a way that I have to know every single detail of his life, but it, you're right. It's our problem and, and something that we can work through together. So I like it. That's really good. So as you have studied relationships and marriages, do you have any data on successful, quote unquote, successful relationships and marriages? What do those pornography patterns look like? Yeah. So there's, there's kind of two threads here to talk about. One, one is I've, I've published a lot of work recently on, on kind of the patterns specifically in terms of 
looking at different couples and and frequency patterns. And and like I said earlier, trying to understand like what do modern couples, particularly young couples in their 20s and 30s look like in in this area? Because like I said, there's a lot of complexity here that we didn't fully understand before that you have some couples where it is more the traditional one partner's hiding porn use from another. There's also though a lot of couples that one partner is using porn and the other partner is aware of it and just doesn't care and says, yep, that's your thing. I don't want anything to do with it. Just don't tell me. You also have partners, like I said, that use it together. And then you can imagine all the different iterations that that creates, right? You've got couples that use it together and one couple's using it secretly couples where one partner or both partners are using it separately, but not together. So you have like all these different configurations. And so some of my research has looked at that. And basically what we found, probably not surprising to most of your listeners, is by far the most healthy couples are the couples where both partners avoid pornography completely. They're more stable. They have better satisfaction, better sexual satisfaction, better emotional connection. That's been consistent across the board. What's interesting, two little caveats or or two details in that research that are interesting. One is, is that now we have some good data from a couple studies that I've done that shows that even with couples that just use porn together, those couples also have more risk to them. That's always been an argument I've heard from some of my colleagues as well. If a couple uses porn together, they both agree on it. It's part of their normal intimacy pattern. There's not any problem with that. Like there, what would be the problem with a couple coming together and using pornography as, as part of their couple intimacy patterns? And what we found is that when it comes to satisfaction, that's true. We don't see any difference in their satisfaction, sexual satisfaction. But what I've been able to show in a couple studies is it does matter with stability. Couples that use porn together and only together are still less stable than couples that avoid pornography. And the main reason we think that is that when you're watching pornography, and we haven't talked much about content stuff yet, but most pornography is not depicting monogamous committed relationships. And so even when we watch pornography together, I'm still getting a lot of media messages about non-monogamy, about other scripts, sexual scripts is what we call them, that are going to make me start to think about, because this is how we usually measure stability, do I think about breaking up with my partner? It's just going to put those thoughts in there, even when we're using pornography Mm -hmm. together. And so I think that's one important thing of the research. The other interesting little caveat is the couples that look the most at risk, that that look the unhealthiest, so to speak, are typically the partners where there is one partner that is using either in secret or known from the other person. So when couples are misaligned and you have one partner that says, nope, I never look at porn and never use porn, and one partner is doing or using pornography alone, that tends to be the worst mix that we see, which is probably not surprising for a lot of people. Uh, so that's that's kind of see what we see on the trend side. The other big thing that I've, I've been working on in the last year or two in my research is to understand how couples negotiate this topic. And, and the big thing there that we find is that despite the fact that, like I said, almost half of all couples now, it looks like, are, are utilizing pornography together and almost all couples have some pornography history between the two partners when they come together only about 20 percent it looks like 20 or 25 percent of couples have ever had real conversations about pornography in the relationship so even though it's a behavior that almost everyone should be dealing with almost no couples are actually having the conversations and that that's a, a big thing i've been talking a lot in my more more recent work 
is the lack of communication that couples have on this topic. Wow. 25%. That is, that's surprising. And I mean, it, it makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's yeah. a hard conversation to have, yeah. but definitely doesn't have to be as we improve the education and the resources for sure. I thought that was super interesting too, the satisfaction versus stability. The satisfaction didn't change, but the stability did. And then you you mentioned content, and I've been wanting to talk also about different gender differences, because obviously I'm more geared towards women. And so do you see different, what are the biggest differences in the content that is consumed by male versus female? Yeah, it's a, an interesting one because it, it used to be a lot different than it is now, I think. When I first got into this area, there's a lot of, of data that would point to the fact that men and women consume pornography pretty differently. There's a, a lot of indication that men were still gravitating towards a lot of, of picture and video-based content. Women were gravitating towards a lot of written erotica and novels and kind of online short story stuff uh, that, that men generally weren't as, as invested in. But those differences have largely... I think not maybe completely gone away, but have, have largely disappeared. And I, I think that really connects to the tube-based pornography that we have today, where now a lot of pornography has been kind of centralized onto a couple mega sites that are based on short video clips and, and operate a lot like YouTube. And and since all pornography kind of points to these sites now in a lot of ways men and women both end up on these sites and they end up consuming a lot of the same content now. We do still see some gender differences. We do see that in some of the content-based research that men are more likely to gravitate towards more aggressive and violent pornography. Women are more likely to gravitate towards more relationship-based pornography. But to me, those are more subtle differences than some of the more, I I would say, clear content-based differences that we used to see. And, and, and part of that is, is just the nature of, of, of like most media companies, these large pornographic companies and, and websites now are steering everyone in the same direction, whether you're male or female, they, they, they want to kind of steer you towards the same sorts of content in a lot of ways. And so I think we're seeing that diminish. I think we'll continue to see that diminish. Certainly you can see pockets of, of differences and some subtle differences, but I, I think a lot of those are starting to continue to, or continuing to erode, like I said. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. What do you see in the next five to 10 years, knowing a lot of the trends, obviously you can't predict the future, but what do you see, I don't know, what do you predict are like the biggest trends just like happening regarding pornography or yeah. relationship wise? I think two big ones that are on my mind. I, I think the relationship stuff is going to become a bigger issue in the public sphere because I think, as I said earlier, as pornography continues to just become very, very common, very, very normative, as we get kind of our Gen Z po- generation that grew up their whole life with smartphones and are now starting to enter young adulthood, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for younger couples to ignore this issue. So in other words, I think one of the big things that's going to happen is more and more couples are going to start to talk about pornography, especially outside of religious contexts, because they're not going to have a moral reason not to have the conversation and they're going to understand that it's there and it's present. And I think what that's going to create, because most couples have very poor resources for how to have those conversations, I think you're going to see conflict around porn go up. I think you're going to see more and more couples 
struggle with conflict around pornography. I think you're going to see more and more couples divorcing because of pornography. My, my mom is a recently retired social worker out in the Midwest. And even she in her private practice with couples was just starting to see as she started to retire an increase in couples that were coming in the door with pornography related issues. Mm. Uh, so I think that's going to increase. I think that's going to be one of the big things is we're going to see more and more of the couple stuff not be kind of hidden in the shadows, but come to the forefront. I think on the the more technological side, if, if you're asking me to predict the next 10 years, like you said, <laughs> we, we're right on the cusp of what I worry about is another major kind of avalanche when it comes to pornography. And we're just kind of waiting for a couple more steps in the technology. And that's VR porn. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're starting to get a little bit of research coming out about the effect that VR porn has on the brain which, which look really, really strong in terms of the, the strong effects that that creates when you kind of can get put into the setting. Like strong, it's, strong, like negative or? Yeah, strong negative. I mean, right now, a lot of it's just neuroscience, just showing that your brain thinks it's there. Okay. And, and when the, your brain thinks it's there, it's eliciting very strong sexual response. So it's, it's kind of like porn on steroids, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and although VR technology has become, you know, really, really popular in the last five or 10 years, it's not like a mainstream, everyone has a VR headset type of thing mm-hmm. here. And certainly not everyone that has a VR headset is accessing pornography. But I think as that technology keeps trickling along, that's one of the things when I go to, to my international conferences that scholars are starting to, to become aware of, of both the increased accessibility of that, the increased utilization of that, and on a business standpoint, we're starting to see some indications that some of the the large kind of, you know, very shady pornography based companies are starting to understand that this might be the place to really, I mean, again, a little side tangent, right? Pornography companies operate a lot like tobacco companies, right? They want you to keep coming back. And so if they can find ways to get people into that addictive model, right, from their mindset, if they can move that 12% addictive number to 25%, that's great for them business-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've heard some colleagues that are are really in tune with some of the business sides of, of the industry, sensing that these large pornography companies know that VR has the potential to really increase the addictive rate of pornography. So that, that that's that's the, the doom and gloom part, I'll say. <laughs> is I, I worry <laughs> about where... Yeah, I worry about where that might go in the next 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> you're right. Doom and gloom. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> but it is good to just be aware of this is a possibility that this is where it goes. So, kind of flipping the script, and I'm going to I'm gonna jump to the last two questions, and hopefully they are not as doomy as glo- and gloomy. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll, we'll, we'll end on an upbeat note, I promise. Okay, perfect. <laughs> And yeah, listeners, it's going to be okay. I promise because... We won't won't talk about the sex trade or any of that really (laughs) nasty stuff. Exactly. Okay, so just first question, what keeps you on the front lines in the war against pornography or why even care about talking about this stuff? Yeah, I think there's two big things for me is is one is, like I said, is, is to go back to kind of my history is I... I started as a healthy marriage scholar. That's how I was trained as a graduate student. And then when I started my academic career, I really got interested in young adult relationships and just how do, how do people in their 20s navigate dating and who who dates who, who gets married, who doesn't? How do you have a healthy relationship? 
process through your 20s. And as I was doing that, you know, back, not to date myself too much, but in the early 2000s, right away, I started to get an indication that there was starting to be this shift where, where pornography was starting to be this thing that these young couples were starting to struggle with, struggling how to navigate it, how to deal with it in their personal life, how to, to, to figure out what this meant in their relationship and dating lives. And so that's, that's when I started to get into this area is, is with that relationship focus. And so what motivates me is as pornography has become so common, as we've talked about, is at the end of the day, I want as many couples to have healthy, health, happy relationships as possible. I think that's good for them. It's good for individuals. It's good for kids. It's good for society. Healthy relationships and healthy marriages are kind of the backbone of any healthy society. And pornography, I think, is one of the things that is creating the most risk right now. For couples in terms of the effect it can have on individuals and how having individuals navigate it, how couples talk about it, how they navigate it. It's just a huge issue right now. And so I think there there's a lot of need to understand the issue. And then like we talked about, provide resources for individuals and couples across, across the spectrum, you know, whether there's, there's pornography use or not, whatever that looks like in your relationship or individually, we just need a lot of information out there to help people navigate this. So that that's that's part of my motivation. The other part of my motivation is that I think this is a cultural issue that hasn't been decided yet. And, and what I mean by that is there's so many issues when it comes to marriage and families where people have kind of firm dis, you know firm thoughts one way or the other, and and, and we get really divisive and, and conflictual with each other about it, certain issues. I think pornography is one that a lot of your kind of general non-religious average people out there haven't really decided on yet. They don't have strong opinions one way or the other. And and for me, that's motivating because it suggests to me that there's still an opportunity to, to really change the landscape. You know, you talk, we talked about policy a little bit earlier. And one of the things I didn't mention is, is I would love an opt-in system. I don't know if you've talked about opt-in systems before on the podcast. I don't think you should explain. Yeah. So let me quickly define that. Right. So right now in the U S we have what's called an opt out system when it comes to pornography, which means if you jump on your computer and you jump on Google, you have access to all the pornography, right? Now you can turn on Google's filters and you can opt out of the porn. There's some select places in the world where the legislature has created opt in systems, which means the internet inherently has no pornography on it. You have to turn that on. You have to opt into the system. So you have to go into your settings and say, hey, I want to access pornography on this phone or on this computer. And it, it seems like a really simple thing. It's, it's again, it's giving people the choice. Like you can opt in whenever you want. There's no restrictions on it, mm-hmm. but it, it doesn't default to it. You know, mm-hmm. so when I give my child a phone, when I give them a laptop or a tablet, I don't have to try to figure out this really complex filtering system that usually doesn't work in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think there's still the potential for that. There, there's a lot of topics out there that there's no way we could get traction on that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think in pornography, there's still enough neutral people out there that we can make a difference culturally to say pornography is a risk factor. It is not good for kids. It's something you want to avoid. And and, and I, I think there's still the potential for that. And that's the other thing that motivates me is, is how can my research and my work help contribute to educating people that pornography is a risk factor. It is not good for people. And and how can we help people that maybe are neutral on the topic, understand it from that perspective? Mm-hmm. 
I also wanted to add, I forgot to mention this before, but yes, so Brian is a, a professor at BYU, but will you talk a little bit about how, because Julie was saying if you are religious in this space, you just get ripped apart. And so how do you, how do you like combat that in your, your methods for study so that people right. don't just hear this and say, well, well, you know, it's just some LDS guy, you know? Right. Yeah. There certainly is some of that, you know, it's, it's interesting as I go to some of the higher level sex research conferences to, you know, I've got my little name tag, Dr. Brian Willoughby, Brigham Young University, Provo, Utah. I've, I've had some interesting conversations with people like, does BYU even let you study that? You know, what's going on there? How, how can you possibly do this research as a, as a Latter-day Saint? And, you know, you, to me, those are missionary opportunities, frankly, yes. to, to talk about from that perspective. But there's always going to be that, that shadow of doubt that's cast on you. You know, is your research showing things just because you, you have this moral stance? And, and for me, that's always put me in a place where I have to say, I need to do research better than most people. My methods have to be more solid than people. And I also can't use my scholarship to weaponize my opinions. If I do that, no one's going to listen to me. And so I, I was actually just talking about this with my grad students in, in class last week. And I was sharing with them that one of the things I've always tried to do in these conversations with scholars, policymakers, general public, is always assume that someone else has a valid opinion that even if it's different than me, I can still learn from. Yeah. And and when I engage in a conversation with them, I think that they sense that and they're more willing to listen to what I have to say. It, just as a quick, short little story related to that is I was at a conference one time in this area and, and, and talking to some colleagues. I ran into a young woman who was, was looking at some of the research posters that were there on pornography and we were talking. And I found out that she was a Pornhub employee that had been sent there from Pornhub to kind of get the lay of the land and, and pretend that they cared about the research and things. And, and so obviously I knew, okay, I, I have a very different view of this than you do. In some ways you are the enemy to me from a moral standpoint. And it would be easy for me to like walk away and be like, oh yeah, I don't want to interact with you. But I, I, I stayed intentionally and, and tried to have a very civil conversation to her about, with her about, the research and what it said. And, you know, I found opportunities to say, yeah, I think there's some risk here for this and this and try to find some common ground. And the biggest thing for me from those types of conversations is so that she can't walk away and say, oh yeah, I talked to a, I talked to a Mormon one time and man, he was like Looney Tunes about this topic. Right. I want her to walk away and say, yeah, I, I talked to a guy from BYU. He wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. Like he, he seemed to have a, a head on the shoulders. He seemed to understand what he was talking about. And, and the hope is, is that then that opens doors to conversations. It allows you to have a voice in the field that's harder to ignore and, and gives you opportunities to, uh, again, not weaponize the research, but just to state what the research is saying is, is, yeah, look, we have all this research that shows that pornography is a risk and not everyone's going to agree with you, but it's, it's harder to just outwardly dismiss you because of your religious background. Right. Yeah, it's true. I, I love it. And I mean, you know, regardless of her background and opinion, she's still a person. And I think that's perfect. And wow, way to have a civil conversation in 2023. I know. Shocking. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think that's awesome. And I think that's a, that's a great way to approach it because we don't necessarily have to hate every single person on the other side. Right. We don't have to agree with them. But yeah. 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 Yep. 
Perfect. Okay, final question. What would you say to a young girl who is struggling with pornography right now and just kind of feels completely alone and and there isn't help for her? Right. Well, I think I think first and foremost, and I'm, I'm sure you, you hopefully get to talk about this a lot, is you're not alone. I, I, I think anyone that's struggling with pornography, particularly teens, are always going to feel like that. It's obviously easier for, for young boys to feel even though they feel like they're alone personally to have this vague understanding of, but I bet a lot of my friends are struggling with this too. I know a lot of, of young women feel like they are alone and they feel like particularly in a religious community like us, ours feel like I'm the only one that's like this, that, that none of my friends have looked at porn. None of my friends are struggling with this. So I think the first message is to say, you're not alone, that there are many, many, many women out there that have struggled with pornography across that whole spectrum we've talked about, whether it's compulsive addictive use, problematic use, you know, dabbling use, if you want to call it that way, just like our, our young adult men is, is to understand that, that you're not alone and that there are pockets of, of, of community, you know, as, as you mentioned, the, the club on campus and others in this podcast, where you can connect with people that have gone through this and are struggling. And, and I think that's the other piece is is find resources, is, is seek those resources out. We all do better with stress in our life when we have resources and we can talk to people. And so figure out who that is, you know, and, and don't assume that people in your life are going to reject you. Don't assume your parents are going to reject you just because you're a woman. Don't assume your bishop's going to reject you because you're a woman. You know, give people a chance to, to be helpful and, and to validate your stress and to be a resource for you. I think that's kind of the next step. Now, the other thing I, I do think is important to say in all that, because it'd be really easy for me to, hear, to sit here and say, yeah, you know, go talk to everyone and seek out resources and you're not alone. And then, as I'm sure you know, I'll get a young woman to be like, well, you know what, Dr. Willoughby, I went and talked to my bishop and he acted like I was going straight to outer darkness and he couldn't even look me in the eye anymore. And, and, and so I think the other piece to that is to understand that, yes, yeah, some people are going to have a bad reaction to you. And, and that's the unfortunate thing about any topic in a religious community that is outside of what we perceive as normal, right? And you could say the same thing about women struggling with pornography. You could talk about transgender issues and same-sex attraction, right? Is a lot of people that struggle with these issues feel isolated because they have bad experiences in the church because not everyone in the church is perfect. Bishops make mistakes. They're, they're, they're human beings just like us. And so the other piece that I would say to that is, is don't give up on people just because you have a bad experience or two. If your parents have a bad reaction, if a bishop says something stupid, right? Don't, don't dismiss the church. Don't dismiss your family. Don't dismiss other people just because you have a bad experience or two. That doesn't make it easy to have those experiences, but, but keep trying. Find, if, if you will find people that are supportive and, and validating of the experience that you've been through and can be supportive through that process. So I, I think that's another important thing to say. And then, like I said, it's just, it's just about seeking resources. And, and, and I guess to, to add a religious spin to it is I, I know a lot of teenage and, and young adult women feel like for whatever reason, if I'm a woman that looks at porn, the atonement doesn't quite get out there to me. That, that somehow I've sinned more than my male counterparts. And, and that's not true. That, you know, regardless of what's happened and regardless of your situation is you have just as much access to Christ and the atonement and companionship through the Holy Ghost 
as anyone else. And, and the only one that wants you to, to feel alone and afraid is the adversary. And, and he does that with a lot of women. It's easy for him to make them feel very alone. And so I think to fight that on a spiritual side and understand that, you know, it is it, a little scriptural parallel, right? Is I don't think it's unintentional that it wasn't the man caught in adultery. It was the woman. There can be a message there, right? That Christ reaches out to women with sexual sin just as much as men. And that's not to pick on on, on women more than men or the other way around, right? Is I, I think it's a illustration that that he loves all of us equally. Yeah. Yeah, I love it. And I actually love that you tied that scripture in. And yeah, I just want to say to anyone, anyone listening who's thinking of going and talking to their bishop or a leader or a parent, again, that we can't guarantee that will be a good experience. And I am so sorry if you have had a bad, bad experience. If you want resources, if you want someone to talk to, I'm always available to talk to. I'm pretty sure any person who has been on the podcast is available to talk to. You don't know. You don't have to know exactly what to say. Uh, literally just reach out and say, hey, can we talk? We can take it from there. But yeah, there is so much hope. And I was going to say about the the story with the woman caught in adultery. I just love that Christ's response was, okay, like whoever, I don't know his exact words, but it's like whoever has no sin among you cast the first stone. And so if if there are people that do have a bad response, it's not because of something that you did or you said, it's probably something that is going on with them. And so give them patience and give them grace as hard as it may be. But there is hope and there are resources out there, I promise, and you are not alone. So yeah, I just thank you for saying all that. And if you do you have anything final message to share or other than otherwise we are good? Yeah, no, I I, I think for me, a big part of this comes down to just talking. Like I, I think that's just a huge thing is this is a topic we need to talk more about as a culture, in families, parents, couples, religious communities. Like I think the more we talk about this, the more we bring this out in the open, the better because it it reduces the shame element of it. It reduces the element where this isn't being talked openly about and people can access resources. So I think that's just a key thing of all this is just talk, talk about it. Yeah. Amen. Amen. Okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on my podcast, Brian. I'm seriously yeah. honored. Thank and you. that was, it was just super informative and I hope that listeners, I hope you enjoyed and until next time, keep up the good fight on the front lines.